uh, Revelation 8 and 9 um, this morning as we continue. I want to share with you a story of my, uh, my first ticket as a licensed driver. Uh, I was 16, fairly uh, newly licensed. I have an early birthday, so I got my license before most of my friends. And one particular Saturday night, uh, a bunch of us were out at someone's house, and we decided that we were going to go to a restaurant late at night. So we piled into a couple cars. I had one buddy join me in the car I was driving. My brother was out of town. He loaned me his car. So I had, had his car and uh, a few others piled into another car, and we, we left. And uh, me and my friend left first, and we pulled out. And I remember coming to a red light on Scott Street and Bunting Road. It was late at night after 11 sometime. There was no one else on the road, no one else at the intersection. My friend didn't have his driver's license yet, and he said to me, uh, he said, why do you wait for this? When I get my license, I've never waited a red light like this. There's nobody here. This was well before red traffic, traffic uh, cameras had lights. But I, I waited for the light to turn green and drove on. A few minutes later, we found ourselves uh, on Ontario Street, just a few blocks from our destination. Just gone over the overpass over the Queen Elizabeth Highway. And I was in the center lane. There was a car next to me. And and the, the other carload of friends caught up and pulled up behind us. Remember, I was in my, my brother's car, a borrowed car, and my friend behind me thought it would be funny to bump me. So he gave me a little jolt, which shocked me. I wasn't expecting it. And with this uh, playing in my mind, I wouldn't wait for a red light if I were you, and this uh, anxiety that what happens if my brother's car that I've borrowed gets wrecked, I was pretty angry at my friend behind me. I looked and in a split second, I gunned it through the red light down Ontario Street a couple blocks and into the parking lot of Birdo's where we were going. I was pretty angry at my friend Phil behind me, not the Phil you know, uh, ready to jump out of the car and, and, uh, and, and rip into him. But before I'd even gotten out of the car, his headlights pulled up right in my rearview mirror, and I thought, he's going to do it again. I couldn't believe it. And so I was smoking mad. I, I opened the door, turned off the key, jumped out of the car, ready to just rip into him. Only it wasn't him. It was a police officer. I remember this wave of, of regret washing over me as I sank back down into my seat. I remember the first words that officer spoke to me. He walked up to the door and he said, do you have a problem with our colors, son? I was so scared. I mean, I, I was guilty. I, I, I had run a red light. Evidently, he'd been sitting kitty corner just behind me, watched the whole thing. I was guilty. I, he knew it. He'd, he'd seen what I'd, uh, I had done. And so there was a ticket that was coming, there were demerit points that were coming, there was the potential loss of my newly acquired driver's license, not to mention the impact that would have on my car insurance as a 16-year-old young male. I was completely terrified. But you know what happened that, that night? That police officer showed me mercy. He, he gave me a ticket. He gave me a ticket for failing to surrender insurance. I couldn't find where my brother stashed his insurance in his car. And so I got away with just paying a fine of a hundred and something dollars, which hurt, but so, 
so much better than what could have happened. He showed me mercy and he warned me and said, you really should obey the colors of the lights. This morning, we come to a text in Revelation uh, that is a difficult portion of the text to read. We're going to read some really hard things this morning in Revelation 8 and Revelation 9. Uh, we, we might prefer to skip over this part of the biblical text, quite honestly. Uh, this would be really uncomfortable if you're, uh, you know, you're watching online and you, you, you convinced a non-Christian friend to join you this morning. You're going to go, oh my goodness, why this morning? Because we're going to read some really hard things. Uh, but skipping over these chapters is not an option. Here we encounter words of warning. But words that I want to contend to you this morning include mercy. Just like my encounter with that police officer was a warning and there was some measure of judgment, but there was so much mercy. So even in the midst of this difficult text, that's what we're encountering. Warning and judgment, but also mercy. And and the truth is we can't just skip over this because this is uncomfortable, because we don't like it, because... We find these things not only in this text here in the Revelation, but we find this message throughout Scripture. Let me remind you of something that I have shared with you already. Eugene Peterson writes this about the Revelation. I do not read the Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I have read it all before in law and prophets, in gospel and epistle. Everything in Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The revelation adds nothing of significance, of substance, to what we already know. The truth of the gospel is already complete, revealed in Jesus Christ. There is nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. I read the revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. St. John uses the words the way poets do, recombining them in fresh ways so that old truth is freshly perceived. He takes the truth that has been eroded to platitude by endless usage and sets it in motion before us in an animated, impassioned dance of ideas. We can't skip over these these words in Revelation 8 and 9, though they are difficult, though they are hard to wrestle with, to grapple with, uh, partly because these words are not unique to Revelation 8 and 9. We find this message of judgment, of warning, Throughout the pages of Scripture, there's nothing new here, per se. The message is not unique. As we turn to, as we read Revelation 8 and 9, we encounter the trumpet blasts of the Revelation. We encounter truths that we encounter throughout the Scriptures. Niels Lund describes it this way. Here it's presented differently. He says, the images of this long scene are addressed to our emotions and imagination and move us as mere logic never could. But as I've already said, these words of of warning, these announcements of judgments, include with them mercy. An incredible announcement of God's great mercy. So that's where we're going this morning. Now, here's what I want to do with you in the time we have together. I want to first remind you of the ground we have covered through the first seven chapters of the Revelation. Second, I want to highlight for you a few structural things briefly that will help us understand this section of the the Revelation. And then third, we're going to work our way through these two chapters. And rather than reading the whole thing at once, we'll read it in chunks, and I will offer words of explanation as we go. And then lastly, I want to conclude 
by reflecting with you on the implications of this text for our lives as readers of it this morning. So first, reminder of what we've walked through. Understanding the big pieces, the structural, uh, the, the, the big pieces of the book and what we've covered helps us uh, understand uh, what we're going to encounter today as we make our way through this. Remember, chapter 1 introduced us uh, first to what this is. This is an apocalypse, an unveiling. Thank you. Uh, an unveiling. In these pages, Jesus will pull back the curtains. He will lift off the cover so that we can see what is really real, so that we can see and understand what is really true. There is more going on than meets the eye. There is more going on than we can see with our physical uh, sense of sight. We're introduced to John, one of the disciples of Jesus, one of the men who followed Jesus around during his earthly ministry, but now he's older. He's in his mid-80s, and he has, been, he has been exiled by Rome to the island of Patmos, this volcanic lump of rock 40 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey. And on the, on the Lord's Day, he is in the Spirit worshiping, and he hears a voice, a voice like a trumpet, and he turns to see the voice, and there he sees the exalted, glorified Christ, and he falls down as though dead, and Jesus puts his hand on him and says, do not be afraid. I am the living one. I was dead, but I, have, I am alive forever. And Jesus commissions John to write what he sees and to send it to the churches, and so that's where we go in the next two chapters. Chapters two and three, Jesus has specific messages for seven particular churches, they are messages to affirm what is good, to warn them and correct them of what is not good in order to prepare them for the great crisis that is coming. We've walked through each of those seven letters. In chapter 4 and 5, John is called up to heaven. He, he comes up, is called up by Christ to an open door and he looks in and he sees the throne room of heaven. And on a throne that is above every other throne is the almighty, glorious God, Yahweh. And he sees God in his glory and those worshiping around him. And he sees then in chapter 5 a scroll in God's hand, a scroll that contains all of God's purposes for judgment and for blessing, judgment and salvation. And, and, and the scroll needs to be opened up so that the contents can be revealed so that God's purposes can unfold in history. But no one is found who is worthy to open the scroll, and John weeps until an elder comes and says, John, don't weep. There's one who is worthy to open it, the Lion of Judah. And John looks to see the lion, and instead of a lion, he sees the lamb, a lamb who was slain. He sees Jesus. Jesus is worthy to bring to completion all of God's purposes for judgment and salvation. And so heaven, all of heaven, rejoices and worships. But the scroll is closed it is sealed. And so in chapter 6, we watch as Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, begins to break the seals. In chapter 6, he breaks six seals. And we see uh, what happens, what, what I described as really a movie trailer. Not the story per se, but, but we're introduced to the themes and the characters and the basic plot line of what will unfold in the future. And then chapter 7, we looked at last week, there's this interlude. Remember, so chapter 6 is breaking six seals. The scroll is sealed with seven seals. Six of them are broken. The scroll is still closed. Chapter 7 we looked at last week, which was an interlude, which served to answer the question asked at the end of chapter 6, when God's wrath is poured out, who can stand? The answer of chapter 7 is that the people of God can stand. Two visions, different perspectives, different times. But the people of God, the whole people of God across history from every nation, language, tribe, 
The people of God can stand on that day of God's wrath, on the day of God's judgment. God's people can stand. Those who trust in Jesus and have been forgiven and have been adopted as daughters and sons of the Almighty One who sits upon the throne, they can stand. Now, chapter 8 will begin with the breaking of the final seal. And with the breaking of that seal, it will introduce us to, uh, to the trumpet blast that we will encounter here. So I want you to bear in mind uh, where we've been. Really quickly, some structural things. The breaking of the seals we encountered in chapter 6, the breaking of six. There was a group of four, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and then the breaking of the fifth and the sixth, and then an interlude, and now in chapter 8 we come to the breaking of the seventh. With the breaking of the seventh, we come to our second set of seven in the Revelation. There are, there are three major sets of seven. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, and later the seven bowls of God's wrath. Now as we hit the seven trumpets, we will follow the exact same pattern we encountered in the seals. There will be a group of four trumpets, then the fifth and sixth trumpet, then there will be another interlude which will be chapters 10 and part of 11. And then halfway through chapter 11, we will finally get to the seventh trumpet. So I just want you to be aware of that structural pattern that is repeating here. That will help us as we seek to uh, understand. Now, unfortunately, we're going to be away from my sister-in-law's funeral, and then I'm off on holidays. So I'm going to leave you hanging here with the sixth trumpet blast until, uh, until the fall. But just be aware of that. I'll remind you of where we're at structurally in our study when we return to it. Uh, in the fall. So uh, let's turn our attention now to the text itself, Revelation 8 and 9. I'm not going to read it all at once. Uh, I, I noted that. We'll make our way through it in sections, and I'll unpack each as we go. Six seals have been broken. There has been an interlude that answered the question of who can stand, and here we come to the breaking, the opening of the seventh uh, The seventh. Seal. I'm going to begin by reading chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. When he, that is Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake." There are quite a number of significant and interesting things that we are told in these opening verses of chapter 8. But perhaps the, the, the strangest of them all is this half hour of silence in heaven. I mean, doesn't that seem a bit weird? The seventh seal is broken, and suddenly there's, there's, there's a half hour of silence in heaven. I mean, heaven has been exploding with worship Angels and elders and the four living creatures have been worshiping the one who is glorious and powerful on the throne and the lamb who was slain. And here the seal is broken in silence. Now I know that any parents of especially young children think half an hour, that is heaven, half an hour of silence. But there's this, again, this weird moment. The seal is broken and there's half an hour. What, what's going on? What are we to make of that? Well, I want to help you remember where we've come. Picture the scene. Picture, reflect on, remember all that John has seen and described to us. John has been called up to this door. He has 
gazed into the throne room of heaven, and he has seen a throne that is above every other throne, and the transcendent, all-powerful, almighty God of the universe sitting upon it. He has seen the Lamb who was slain, who is the Lion of Judah, who is worthy to bring to fulfillment all of God's purposes in human history, all of God's purposes for judgment and salvation. He has watched as the six first six seals on the scroll of destiny have been broken. He's anticipated the opening of the scroll and the revealing of God's purposes, of God's plans for judgment. There was, after the sixth seal is broken, this, this interlude, this interruption, this answer to the question, who can stand? And so he's shared that with us. He's watched that. He's seen the vision of, of the whole people of God being marked as as owned by God, as belonging to God, and as gathered around the throne worshiping God in chapter 7. Here in these verses, the seventh and final seal is finally broken. The scroll is about to be opened. And as that seal is broken, suddenly a hush falls over all of heaven. As all of heaven anticipates breathless silence for this seal to be broken. Can you feel the suspense? Do do you feel the, the sense of anticipation? The worship stops and all of heaven waits for the revelation of what happens next. The revelation of God's purposes. The suspense builds for us as readers of the text too. Because we are anticipating, we have been anticipating, if we've been reading well, the breaking of that final seal and the opening of the scroll and the revealing of its contents. And so we want to know, what does the scroll say? Now, interestingly, perhaps a little bit frustratingly, at this point, no one unrolls the scroll and reads it to us. Instead, we get another vision. John writes this in verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. It is significant at this point that we read not just any seven angels, but the seven angels. That's really clear in the original. And for those readers of this text, uh, that would have immediately brought to mind a particular seven angels. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever read any of the apocryphal books. So these are books from uh, the biblical period of time, not included in Scripture, not understood by the church as authoritative or inspired like Scripture, so not on the same level. But nonetheless, we can read from those and learn some things. And the Jews of this day, certainly others would have known, they would have, when, when they heard of the seven angels, would have thought of the seven angels that are mentioned over and over in some of these books. For example, in the book, the document known as Tobit, we hear an angel say, I am Raphael, one of the seven angels who stands ready and enters the glory of God. In the book of Enoch, the other uh, of these seven angels are listed by name. Uriel, Raquel, Michael, Sariel, Gabriel, and Remiel. These are the archangel, archangels. So this is what would have come to the minds of the original hearers of this text. The seven angels. And the seven angels are given seven trumpets. These seven angels, the archangels, who stand 
and minister in God's presence. And in John's vision, these angels are given each a trumpet, which will be sounded shortly. But before they're sounded, something else unfolds in this scene. Another angel comes to the altar. Now, we encountered this altar back in chapter uh, 6. Remember uh, when John looked, the sixth seal was broken, and John saw the fifth seal, sorry. The fifth seal was broken, and John saw under the altar in heaven, presumably this altar is, the martyrs, those who've lost their lives as faithful followers of Jesus. And they cry out, how long, O Lord? Well, here uh, we see an angel who comes to the altar. And in his hand, he holds a golden, uh, a golden censer or a fire pan, uh, the priestly tool used for burning coals and incense, which would have given off a pleasing aroma and sent smoke wafting up. So we read that this angel was given much incense mixed with the prayers of God's people. So imagine the imagery here is that God's prayers mixed with incense a pleasant aroma, are wafting up in the presence of God, wafting up to God. Remember the, Lord's, the, the prayer of God's people is, how long, O oh Lord? They, how long till you vindicate us? How long till you set things right? Eugene Peterson writes this, Massive engines of persecution and scored, scorn uh, raged against God's people. They had neither weapons nor votes. They had little money and no prestige. Why didn't they have mental breakdowns? Why didn't they cut and run? They prayed. While conflicts raged between good and evil, prayers went up from devout bands of first century Christians all over the Roman Empire. This angel takes incense mixed with the prayers of God's people and takes fire from the altar. Perhaps that's an image of purifying our prayers because we don't always pray right. Our prayers... but. But God purifies our prayers. Our prayers go up before God. This angel mixes that. And then he hurls that mixture of burning coals from the altar and the prayers of the saints and incense down upon the earth. And we read that on impact, there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Those are signs. Those are symbols of a theophany of God showing up. The prayers of God's people, our prayers ascend to heaven unremarkably and largely unnoticed. But they are returned to earth with immense force. In the drama of Revelation, the earth is shaken by the prayers of God's people. George Herbert calls this reverse thunder. This scene depicts symbolically God responding to the prayers of His people for vindication, for the end of their suffering, for for things to be set right. How long, O Lord? This scene depicts God's coming judgment hurled down the prayers of God's people and God moving through them. And we return then to the seven angels who stand in God's presence, the archangels, each with a trumpet. I don't know if many of you are terribly familiar with trumpets, my two younger brothers, twins, they learned to play trumpet. I remember them learning. Trumpet is a hard instrument to ignore. Pretty loud, shrill instrument. Here, there are trumpets. Each angel is, receives a trumpet. Now, trumpets were used, if we read the Old Testament story, trumpets were used for various purposes, uh, to call people to a holy assembly, to declare a feast, to announce the enthronement of a new king. But mostly they were used for warnings. We read this in Joel chapter 2. 
Verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. That's how trumpets often were used throughout the Old Testament story, and that's how they are used here in Revelation. They are an instrument of warning. They announce the coming of God's judgment. Now, what we are about to see, what we are about to work our way through is disturbing. There are some even grotesque images, and it's hard to read, but we need to understand these are announcements of warning about God's judgment, God's judgment against evil and sin, God's judgment against the inhabitants of the earth who persist in their rebellion against God. Now what we are about to see, as terrifying as it is, tells us, it shows us really clearly the reality of God's coming judgment. And though it is horrifying in many ways to read this, it is not... It is also, there is within this some good news that we can see if we look closely. Good news, you ask? Yes. Here's what Daryl Johnson writes. He says, judgment says that God cares. Judgment says that we and our choices matter to God. Judgment says God takes evil and sin seriously. Judgment says God is not indifferent to nor tolerant of evil and sin. Judgment says that God moves against evil and sin. Do you remember the cry of the saints who were martyred under the altar in the breaking of the fifth seal? How long, O Lord, till you vindicate us? How long, O Lord, till you set things right? The short answer at that point was wait. Here we get the longer answer. God is not refraining from judgment forever. His judgments are being worked out even now on the, uh, on the stage of human history. With that in mind, let's turn to the next chunk of our text, verses 6 to 12. Revelation 8, 6. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star was Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the water that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. So here... In our second pattern of sevens, we come first to this set of four. As plagues preceded the Exodus event in the life of God's people in the book of Exodus, so too here plagues precede the deliverance of God's people from the hostile powers of Rome. The first four trumpet blasts bring about an assortment of plagues uh, which echo uh, virtually all of them echo plagues from that Exodus story back in the book of Exodus, if we look at that. The first trumpet is sounded, and it brings hail mixed with blood and fire, hurled to the earth. Though directed against nature, that is against the earth, right? A third of the earth, a third of the trees, and all of the grass is burned up. Obviously, that would impact humanity. The second trumpet 
Uh, while the first trumpet brings devastation to the land, the second trumpet blast brings destruction to the sea. Something like a huge mountain is thrown into the sea. This is the one image that doesn't come from Exodus and almost certainly would have brought to minds of those hearers uh, remembrance of Mount Vesuvius, which destroyed Pompeii a mere 15 years before John would have written this. This mountain erupts into the sea, destroying this great city. A third of the sea was turned to blood. Again, a clear allusion to Egypt. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships were destroyed once again, primarily directed against nature, but with horrific impact in, uh, on, on humanity. The third trumpet is sounded. A great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky and poisons a third of all the world's fresh water. Again, reminiscent of the plague in, in the Exodus event where the Nile, this source of, of water for Egypt, I mean the Nile was a source of life for Egypt and it was turned to blood that had a massive impact here too. Fresh water that humanity is dependent upon, a third of it is turned bitter and kills people. The fourth trumpet is sounded, and a third of the day and a third of the night are deprived of light. Humanity is cast into darkness, again reminiscent of the plague of darkness in the story of the Exodus. After these first four trumpet blasts come, impacting the forces of nature and indirectly humanity, we come to this verse, verse 13. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. This verse serves as a transition between the, the first group of four trumpet blasts and the three that are to follow. This eagle, John sees in his vision an eagle coming who, who cries out, Woe, woe, woe because of what is about to come with these next trumpet blasts. And make note of this, an eagle is a carrion bird. An e eagle eats the flesh of the dead. And here the announcement is that the next trumpet blast will be worse than what they've encountered so far. We turn to the fifth trumpet blast, verses 1 to 12 of chapter 9. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months." And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions, and in their tails they had the power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in the Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is, destroyer. The first woe is past, two other woes are yet to come. In just six verses, John set forth the first four trumpet blasts. To describe the fifth and sixth trumpet blasts, he will take more than three times the space. The fifth trumpet is sounded. 
And what we need to appreciate at this point is that John is making use of all kinds of imagery to communicate his point, to draw for us at this point a really horrifying picture. A star is given a key. Now, there's some debate on some of the particulars. And, and let me just say this. Some of you are familiar with the Narnia Chronicles, I'm sure, I hope. If you're not, you should read them and get familiar with them. Uh, the Narnia Chronicles... C.S. Lewis did not write them as an allegory. An allegory, strictly speaking, is something where one uh, thing in a story represents another thing in that you, you just try and figure out what equals what through the whole story. And, and C.S. Lewis, by his own admission, was not writing an allegory. Uh, certainly Aslan, the lion character in the Narnia Chronicles, uh, represents Christ, but he really he wrote uh, with the goal of providing a story for children that at many points would have the shape of the Christian gospel. And his hope was, his goal was that this story that kids would read, someday they would hear the gospel and there would be a sense of, I've heard this before, this resonates with me because of the shape of the story. So it's not an allegory where every detail equals something. And I want to contend right now that there may well be all kinds of details here that, that we as readers in the 21st century, that we might miss some of the things that some of this was pointing to for the original readers. But I want to say this, that, that if we look for meaning in every little detail as we read through this imagery, we're going to lose our way and miss the point. Because as we read it as a whole, the point that is being made, the point that is being communicated is perfectly clear. And so let me just preface what I'm going to say uh, with that. We see a star who is given a key. Now, there's some debate about who or what that star represents. I would suggest it points to an angel that we will encounter in chapter 20 when we come back to the abyss. But we'll leave that. By God's sovereign degree, uh, decree, the abyss is open, and out of it comes thick smoke. And out of the smoke comes this, this locust army, this demonic locust army. The trumpet blast. One of the Egyptian uh, blast echoes one of the Egyptian plagues. That is the eighth plague, the plague of locusts. These insects that come and devour crops and vegetation. Uh, but these locusts are like scorpions in that they have the power to sting people. And it's the reverse of what happened in the plague of locusts in Exodus. Uh, locusts typically would eat vegetation. They would eat plants. They would eat crops, but here they are told not to harm the vegetation, but rather to harm people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Remember that from uh, chapter 7. Uh, God's people were marked, they were sealed, identified as those belonging to him. So these locust army is to sting like a scorpion all those who are not sealed, not marked as God's people. They are they're not allowed to kill them. They're only called to torture them for five months. And we read this and we're horrible. Like, this seems, this seems absolutely awful. What, is, what does this mean, to torture them for five months? Well, let me say a couple things. One, five months is the normal duration of a locust plague. So that's probably where the number comes from. But the significance is it points to the fact that this time of torture is a limited period of time. It's not forever. It's limited. Five months. In the imagery here, it's strong judgment to be sure, but it's limited. We look at the appearance of this locust army, and it's bizarre. Described as looking like horses prepared for battle, breastplates of iron, teeth like those of a lion, not, not in appearance, but in their ability to devour. And, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of horses and chariots. Now, that imagery 
this locust army, this is, I've talked about all the allusions to Old Testament and other biblical texts. Joel 2 describes a locust army used to signify uh, an enemy army that God will raise up to punish, in that case, his own people, Israel. Uh, this imagery comes from Joel 2. And in Joel, the locust army, yeah, there's this locust army, but there's more in the description. It describes something like crowns of gold on their heads, human faces, and women's hair. What is going on? Well, I want you to understand something about Rome. This is written to the church in Rome at a point in Rome's history when Rome is is completely dominant at the the height of their power. And yet Rome is afraid of the barbarian hordes in the north who had long blonde hair, these wild men. And so Rome kept pushing out the boundaries of their empire, afraid of an invasion of the the hordes. And so this almost, as you think, crowns of gold, long women's hair. I mean, this is a description likely of an image that would have been present in the minds of Romans. The empire was aware of the northern barbarian hordes and there was some fear. And so it would suggest that this is far from pointing to some specific moment in history. It's just giving, just taking all this imagery from, from Joel 2 and from the, the fear of Rome, of the barbarian hordes and presenting this horrific picture of this demonic locust army that will come and bring great pain and suffering for those who are not God's people for a limited period of time. I would suggest that we need to understand this as the imagery that it is. Don't try and figure out every minute detail. Let your imagination see this for what it is. This is a picture of God's temporal judgment upon those who rebel against him on the earth, the inhabitants of the earth. We come to the fifth, or sorry, the sixth trumpet blast, verses 13 to 19. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. And the power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The sixth trumpet plague is even worse. Two things happen. We see first, we hear this announcement of four angels who have been kept for this moment in history, uh, bounded by, if you will, the great river Euphrates, who are set loose to kill one-third of humanity. Second, we're introduced to the image, imagery shifts dramatically. These angels are released to kill a third of the population. Suddenly, the imagery shifts, and we're introduced to this cavalry, these armed cavalry that is so incredibly immense. I mean, do math again here. Twice times 10,000 times 10,000. That's a lot of horses. That's a lot of soldiers prepared for battle. These angels are released. Suddenly this imagery of this enormous cavalry. And I would contend again that this is symbolic. This is imagery. This, I mean, 
think about do, do two, two times 10,000 times 10,000. How many horses is that? And is there a place that can actually hold that many mounted soldiers on horses? Is, is this literally pointing to a specific number or is the point simply, this is a really big army. This is, this is something to be afraid of. I would suggest that's the point. From their lion-like heads comes smoke, fire, and sulfur. They have tails that inflict lethal damage. And the three plagues that come from these mounted cavalry kills one-third of the inhabitants of the earth. Now, I would suggest that there is a clue to our interpretating, uh, interpretation of this. Interpretating. It's the fact that these four angels are bound, uh, held back at the, the Euphrates River, which was a boundary of the Roman Empire. Beyond the Euphrates was the Parthians. And twice in Rome's history, they had been defeated by the Parthians. And so again, this draws on imagery, draws on the, the, the collective memory of Rome, that this demonic, massive army that they fear is going to come and inflict incredible pain, incredible damage, killing a third. Again, all of this, I would suggest, is symbol not a statistic. We, we, we don't take this literally. We let it fill, fire our imagination. Gerald Johnson writes, the picture is meant to be inconceivable, horrifying, and even revolting. Judgment is not pretty. We come to the last two verses of our text, verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the, works of, their, of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. I would contend that this is the interpretive key for this whole section of the text understanding the trumpets. Here we find the clue that helps us unlock all that's going on here. In these words, the rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent. We need to pause and reflect at this point on a few questions that perhaps have been running through your minds as we've made our way through this text. First, we need to ask why these trumpet plagues so clearly echo the plagues of the story of Exodus? What's the point of the similarity? I mean, why plagues that so clearly remind us of those plagues in the story of the Exodus? Well, what were the plagues in the Exodus story aimed at doing? The plagues that fell on Egypt were designed to warn Pharaoh to bring Pharaoh to his senses, to bring Pharaoh to the point of surrendering, of submitting himself to Yahweh, the God who is over all of creation, over the whole cosmos. It, it was aimed to bring him to a place of bowing to God so that he would acknowledge God's sovereignty. Second, perhaps we've been asking the question, what's up with a third? We, we encounter that language over and over and over again through these verses a third of the earth, a third of the trees, a third of the sea, a third of sea creatures, a third of the ships, a third of the fresh water, a third of the day and a third of the night without light, a third of the world's people. Why a third? What's, what's up with that? And I want to contend that, that the point is this is about God's mercy. Mercy, you ask? Yes, mercy. 
One-third means a fraction, a portion of, not complete. God's judgment in the blasting of the trumpets is not complete judgment. It is not total. Please understand, again, I would suggest this isn't something we take literally. It is a symbol. It is not a statistic. The point is that God's judgment, as awful as it is when the trumpets blast, though it is real and terrible, it is not yet final. It is not yet complete. There is still an opportunity to repent. There is still an offer of mercy. Even the fact that the fifth trumpet that brings torture on people for five months for this limited period of time, even that is a sign of God's mercy. People want to die, but death will elude them. We know that there is something worse than death. And that is death apart from Christ. Death apart from repentance. So the fact that death is kept at bay extends the opportunity. It extends that invitation for people to respond to God, to receive His mercy. Even that is God's grace. Listen, the trumpet blasts are warnings. They are warnings. They are evidence of the holiness of God, but they are evidence of His love and His mercy. They, they warn a world, warn humanity that one day judgment will come. And the trumpet blasts God's judgment is partial. When the bowls of God's wrath are poured out, it will be complete. One last question. When does this happen? When do these trumpet, trumpets blast? Well, I want to contend, again, that the point is not that they point to some specific event, but that rather that just like the four horsemen of the apocalypse are galloping over the surface of the planet today, that just as they did in John's day, that they, they experienced the ravages of war and violence and famine and death. Just as Christians in that day were martyred for their faith, so too that happens today. The, the, the breaking of the seals points to elements of the story that were true in John's day and continue to be true today. And these trumpet blasts were true in, John, in John's day. That is, God's acts of temporal judgment fell. Rome would eventually fall. But this is, continues to be the case today. The trumpets depict God's temporal judgments in human history. The first four trumpet blasts point to nature gone berserk, impacting food supply. Seas and commerce, drinking water, the light by which we see. And then the warnings get progressively worse. Forces out of nature, out of control, no longer operating as they should. With the four trumpet blasts. First four trumpet blasts. And then the fifth and sixth describe these grotesque demonic armies that torture and kill and bring pain to humanity. And we see God using even the powers of Satan to accomplish his purposes in defeating Satan's kingdom. The same way that Joseph, who was sold into slavery, God used what was evil to accomplish his purposes. Here, God uses these demonic forces, armies, if you will, to bring to an end to Satan's kingdom. Together, the trumpet blasts shout to humanity. God is trying to get our attention. He's trying to call us from rebellion to surrender. C.S. Lewis writes... 
God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. But he shouts in our pain. As we encounter these first six trumpet blasts, can you hear God's voice calling, shouting to humanity? Something is wrong. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. You are ignoring me. You're headed for destruction. Turn around. Repent. Come to me while there's time. This is both warning and a merciful invitation. There is a way through all of this. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and receive the mercy that is found in Him alone. Come to Jesus and be marked with the seal that identifies you as belonging to God who sits on the throne above every other throne. Come to Jesus while there is yet time. Repent. Turn from your sin. Turn from your rebellion. Turn to Jesus and receive His love, His grace, His mercy. These are hard texts to read. It is not a pleasant thing to contemplate the judgment of God, but God's judgment here in the trumpet blast is partial. One day, later in the Revelation, we'll encounter the pouring out of the bowls of God's wrath and God's judgment will be complete. So even God's judgment, temporal judgment, is an act of His mercy, inviting us to repent, to turn. So what are the implications of this for our lives? First, we need to repent. If you are listening, if you're with us here physically or online, and you have never put your faith in Jesus, I urge you to do so. I urge you to surrender, to bow your knee to the King above every king, to the one who gave his life, the Lamb who was slain for you. Jesus came and he lived his life In your place, He died the death that you and I deserve so that through faith in Him, through saying, Jesus, I need Your mercy, I need Your grace, we we lean on Him, we put our faith in Him, we, we turn from our lives of sin and rebellion, and we lean on Jesus, and we are saved, we are marked as His, we become part of the people of God, and we are part of that great multitude who one day will be able to stand when God's wrath is poured out. Not on our own merits, not because we're good people, but because we've trusted in the Lamb who was slain. If you do not know Jesus, if you have never turned from your sin, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, I urge you today, listen to the trumpets that are being sounded even now. Give your life to Jesus. Surrender before Him. Second, to those of us who have already come to Christ, Does this not break your heart for the lost? We need to be men and women of prayer. We need to be men and women who intercede for the lost. All around us there are people who do not have the hope of the gospel. And God's judgment will come. It will come in its completeness. And so now there are trumpet blasts. And so as we encounter things in human history, be it, be it even COVID-19, and I'm not going to stand here and say, oh, this is God's act of judgment, but trumpets are sounding. People are wondering what's going on. God wants to get the attention of those who are lost and in rebellion. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to be men and women of prayer. We need to intercede for the lost. Not just token prayers and then we get back to our TV shows. We need to be men and women whose hearts break for the lost world around us. Cry out. That God would open the eyes of those who are blind, that He'd move in hearts, 
Thirdly, we need to proclaim the truth. We need to shout it from the rooftops. We need to help those around us interpret what's going on in the world today. We need to to let them know that there are trumpets that are being sounded, warnings of God's judgment, and call them to Christ. We need to do that boldly, one-on-one, and in larger, we, we need to be those men and women who boldly proclaim the hope of the gospel, who help people understand that even the horrible things that we see going around are opportunities and invitations to receive God's mercy. I want to finish with this quote. British scholar Michael Wilcock summarizes the message, I think, very well. He says, the seals showed the suffering church pleading for justice to be done. But the trumpets show the wicked world being offered mercy. They offer, the offer is not accepted and the world will not in fact repent. But let it never be said that God has not done all in his power even to the devastation of his own perfect earth in order to bring men and women to their senses. The trumpets of the revelation are warnings, but they are warnings full of mercy. Just like my experience with that cop many years ago. I received a warning. I faced a little bit of judgment, but mostly I just received mercy, and every time I remember that story, I'm so grateful for what that cop did. I mean, it wouldn't have been the end of the world, but I think back and go, it it could have unfolded so differently. I don't know what he was thinking, but he saw this punk 16-year-old kid. He'd seen my friend hit the car. He knew why I went through the light. And so he warned me. I faced some judgment, but mostly I received mercy. That's what these trumpet blasts are. And we, as children of God, need to be those who proclaim God's coming judgment and his invitation to receive his mercy. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for this text, as difficult as it is. Father, we pray for this world. We pray for the many who remain in rebellion against you. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move in hearts, that you would bring many women and men, young and old, to repentance that they would hear the trumpet blasts and that they would surrender to your mercy and receive your love and your grace and life. Jesus, would you work in us, your people? Would you allow us to hear the trumpet blasts and live in light of them? That we would be those who intercede for the lost around us, that we would be those who would proclaim the hope that is found in you, Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, we pray for a great revival a great turning to you. Though many will persist in their rebellion, Lord, bring many to repentance, we pray in your name, Jesus.